Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now podcast channel. Our conversation today will bring you up to speed on a variety of domestic and overseas developments, including the protests in Cuba, the latest on budget negotiations, and more. So uh, joining me here on the line for the conversation, uh, glad to welcome back Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. So Shane, uh, welcome back. Looking forward to diving into some of these topics with you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Dan. It's great to be uh, back with you today. Absolutely. So, uh, Shane, I know there are a couple of pressing items on the geopolitical front that we want to get to. Maybe we can start with the fact that uh, what we've seen in Cuba this week, we've witnessed one of the biggest protests occur in Cuba in decades. Can you bring us up to speed in terms of what exactly ignited this uproar by the Cuban people, uh, where we stand on this matter today, and what is the position of the U.S. on this development? Yeah, there's a lot going on there, but I think maybe at the heart of it is the economics of, you know, what is a failed communist state? You know, in the 70s and 80s, um, Cuba was subsidized by the Soviet Union. And then um, after that went away, they were, you know, friendly with uh, Venezuela, which at that time was a rich nation. And around that time, you saw other communist countries like China and Vietnam have economic reforms that, you know, have led to a uh, stronger economy in those countries. And Cuba resisted those reforms. And so now you have a, a, a point in, in Cuba where the economy is in shambles, quite frankly. You know, you know, people are without basic needs of food, you know, and other basic needs. And add on the strain of COVID, and it's really, you know, putting so much pressure on uh, the Cuban regime, which, by the way, remember, has finally uh, turned over from the Castro family. Um, you know, the Castro family was in charge of Cuba for decades and just in the past three years it turned over. So, you know, this is really an inflection point in Cuba. Um, and it's reflected um, even with President Biden calling a failed state yesterday. And I think you're going to see uh, the Biden administration and Congress you know, try and figure out what is the best uh, course of action to try and promote d- democracy uh, and, you know, a brighter economic future in Cuba. I think uh, the Biden administration is looking at how to provide Internet services um, because, you know, the, the Cuban regime has had to cut off Internet services to try and quell these protests. Um, and as we know, you know, Internet, you know, is not trivial anymore in the sense it's, it's important to the communication of people. And, and there's more to play out here. And, you know, the question is, is this uh, will these protests, you know, foment real change in Cuba or will they be quelled and, and you know, tampered down and we don't actually see a real change in Cuba? It will be interesting to see how this plays out and what the response of the U.S. ultimately is. It has been interesting this week to see the demonstrations, the protests in Miami as well. So uh, more to come here, something we can follow up on, though I do want to follow up on an item we did cover last week, Shane. I know a couple of days ago the White House did announce an operation to evacuate Afghans who assisted the U.S. during the war. Uh, whether they be drivers, interpreters, a variety of capacities. But, Shane, can you walk us through what the plan calls for and what are some unknowns uh, yet to be determined, namely the final destinations of these evacuees? Yeah, no, that is 
a correct description in the sense that this is very fluid and it's, you know, kind of happening on the fly as dictated by this, this situation. Um, you know, the withdrawal of the U.S. military by the end of August um, has brought a lot of concerns, as we discussed, especially when it comes to the safety of um, our allies in Afghanistan. And as you point out, often they're interpreters or drivers or otherwise. So, you know, I think, uh, as you mentioned, President Biden has uh, directed the evacuation of, of these uh, allies. And they're probably going to be brought to U.S. bases around the world. Uh, and while they're at these bases, they will be, um, you know, essentially processed by the State Department for um, proper visas and credentials to come into the United States. You're actually, I believe the House is going to next week uh, pass legislation to try and um, speed in up this process uh, uh, for visa approval. Um, so, you know, I think... Uh, we're, we're seeing some cohesion here um, in the urgency of the matter, and hopefully that will that urgency will be reflected in uh, swift action. So, Shane, as a follow-up, I understand that former President George W. Bush did weigh in on President Biden's overall strategy, his policy in the region uh, with respect to Afghanistan, which was quite interesting because over the years, uh, President Bush has been uh, silent. We have not heard much from him. So what exactly was expressed? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right to point that out. Uh, President Bush has purposely uh, remained quiet uh, since he left office. He rarely, um, you know, sticks his head out into the policy arena. You know, he has a lot of causes that he cares about and works on on a daily basis, but he generally tries to stay out of the press unless it's to, you know, promote some of those causes. So, you know, for him to um, speak up here, it, it, it really resonated with him that he felt the need um, to be vocal on this issue. Um, so he has expressed uh, great concern about what the withdrawal means in Afghanistan for the people of Afghanistan. Um, but also, you know, those uh, interpreters and drivers are our allies who we were just talking about. And he's very concerned that, you know, this withdrawal will lead to the slaughter of thousands of Afghanis who at the end of the day want freedom and want prosperity. Um, and to your point, it's quite meaningful that uh, former President Bush has spoken out here. Well, uh, Shane, thank you for weighing in a bit on that and bringing us up to speed. So we'll keep a close eye on how this plays out. And as we talked about last week, uh, certainly a lot of opinions on what the correct policy path forward is. So I suppose it's natural that we hear from officials, both a current and former, but more to come there. Uh, maybe we can switch gears a bit, talk about some domestic issues. So uh, this week, and I believe Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about this, the White House did uh, basically come out in opposition of legalizing cannabis on the federal level, while, of course, on the state level, we've seen gradual adoption, including my state of Connecticut. Though, Shane, can you talk about the rationale behind this position of the Biden administration when it comes to cannabis? Yeah, this is really interesting because, you know, besides Biden, you have most Democrats, I think, in Congress who have an uh, entirely different philosophy about the legalization of cannabis. Uh, as you point out, I think we're up to 38 states that have legalized cannabis in some form. And actually, this week, a group of Democrat senators, including the majority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer from New York, uh, floated legislation that would legalize, regulate, and tax cannabis at the federal level. 
Um, you know, and President Biden, I don't think he's comfortable with that um, uh, that change, policy change right now. Um, you know, he has a long history on uh, marijuana and cannabis, and I think he has concerns that, you know, that is not the proper direction. Um, you know, in the Senate, that bill that I was just talking about, you know, while it uh, has strong support from Democrats, I don't think there is any Republican support for it. And it faces opposition and probably won't move anywhere. I, I would note that there is a bipartisan bill that has already passed um, the House um, that would allow financial institutions to serve covered cannabis businesses. Um, and that's the House with a wide uh, margin. However, you know, that does have some opposition from Republicans in the Senate, but it also has um, opposition from Democrats who really, um, you know, may be okay with at the end of the day, but they want to focus on the larger issue that uh, at hand here of, of decriminalization and um, how to um, move forward on the larger issue and regulate and tax cannabis at the federal level. So they're kind of holding it up. But overall, we have a real stalemate um, in D.C. on the future of cannabis. You know, I, I think, I think though, if you look back, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we are much closer to legalizing cannabis than we were 15, 20 years ago, but there still remains a stalemate. So I think, you know, I don't expect any... Uh, major legislation to pass at this time. Um, but, you know, it is trending that way. And maybe it'll take another 5, 10, 15 years. But uh, slowly but surely, the um, calls to legalize cannabis in some forms are growing. Yeah, to your point, uh, Shane, we, we've come a long way in a relatively short order, though it is interesting to hear about this stance on the federal level, given the kind of momentum recently we've been seeing on the state level. So uh, as you indicated, there's a lot more to come here and certainly something we can follow up on. Uh, maybe another domestic item we can hit on real quick. I know Senate Democrats on Wednesday, this was led by uh, Leader Chuck Schumer, did unveil a 35 trillion dollar budget proposal, uh, this known as the Go It Alone plan. Now, as the name suggests, a push forward without bipartisan support. So, Shane, can you talk to us about the strategy behind this proposal, uh, what exactly the plan calls for, and what the reception has consisted of? Yeah, so Senator Schumer is trying to do a, a dual track approach here. Um, so he's called for a vote on Wednesday, a test vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package, um, and then at the same time, he wants to move this uh, budget resolution that calls for uh, $3.5 trillion in spending. Um, this budget resolution kind of is an overarching structure that sets up later this year a, a, a vote on a go-it-alone bill that actually spends the money um, uh, on this $3.5 trillion, which could actually be lower at the end of the day. So it's it, this is an interesting strategy because what's going on is that um, while we have this bipartisan deal on infrastructure, not everyone is on board. You have progressives who oppose it because they're concerned that if it passes, it will eliminate their chances of doing that $3.5 trillion package. So they're trying to move them simultaneously, which is um, very interesting and is going to pose some challenges and could actually doom the bipartisan bill. You have the Republicans who do support that bipartisan bill 
who are starting to back away because they feel like they're being played. And and this is Democrats walking away from the core of the bipartisan deal. Um, and it's, you know, it was built. And this is uh, this move by Senator Schumer is an act of bad faith. So um, this is um, kind of a high wire act, you know, in D.C. You have so many different ways this to play out. Um, and this is also going to play out not over days, but weeks and possibly months. So then we'll definitely continue to talk about this uh, with the rest of the summer and possibly in the fall. Part of the scope of the spending proposal does call for broadening Medicare benefits. So is there any support for that component? What might the path forward there look like? Yeah, that's interesting. Good. Thank you for pointing that out. Actually, you know, we wrote about this in the Washington Weekly probably a year and a half ago. And back then we were saying, you know, well, Democrats, if they win the election, you know, there'll be Democrats who are talking about doing Medicare for all. But that's not reality. We At that time, we said the fallback position would be to expand Medicare and include services like uh, vision, dental and hearing, um, which is a significant increase to Medicare. It probably costs over $350 billion. Um, and so we think that's where they're heading uh, in this potential $3.5 trillion package is to expand Medicare for um, vision, dental, and hearing benefits. Um, you know, I, and I think there is support for that among Democrats. You know, I think, you know, there are Republicans who actually support it as well, too. I think their concerns would be, you know, how do you pay for the cost? Um, there's always this, you know, back and forth in D.C. about, well, is it costing money or is it saving money? Because something like hearing, um, you know, if you get someone a hearing aid that actually um, often prevents other illnesses um, like dementia. Um, so, you know, you could argue that it saves money at the end of the day. I think the official scorekeepers in D.C. don't see it that way, um, which then leads to this conversation of how do you pay for it, which is always um, a very thorny one in D.C. between Republicans and Democrats. So I think there is a real chance at the end of the day for an expansion of Medicare, um, and but I would expect that for it to happen, it would have to be included in that uh, Democrat-only bill that you uh, had mentioned. Well, Shane, as you indicated earlier, the discussion will continue seemingly well into the fall and perhaps beyond, so something here will continue to track very closely as we learn more. Though, uh, Shane, very productive conversation as always. Thank you for bringing us up to speed on a variety of timely topics overseas and key topics here at home that matter to our clients. So, Shane, great catching up with you. Hope you have a nice weekend, and we'll look forward to picking back up with the conversation next week. Thanks, Dan. I hope you guys have a great weekend as well, and I look forward to coming with you next week. Thank you, Shane. And again, today we've been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, please be sure to reference the latest Washington Weekly publication, which can be located on UBS.com forward slash Washington Weekly. Of course, for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the Washington Weekly publication directly. The Washington Weekly podcast is part of the UBS In The Now podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. 
Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.